Well, thank you everybody for coming tonight. Can everybody hear me in the back? Um, so tonight's talk was sort of titled Friendship, Femininity, and Fickleness, which was sort of a reference to some of the things that go wrong in our friendships from time to time. Um, but I did want to start off tonight just with a few general ref reflections on friendship before I move into sort of specifically feminine friendships. Um, and I consulted one of several experts. Um, I looked at C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves. Um, has, has anyone read that? It's, I, re I highly recommend it. Um, obviously, friendship is one of the four loves. Um, he divides it into three natural loves, uh, which he refers to as eros, which we know as sort of you know, passionate love, um, affection, which is perhaps best exemplified by a bond between a mother and child, or perhaps siblings, um, friendship, and then, of course, the greatest and most properly um, called love, which would be charity. But this he describes as a supernatural love. Um, but I'd like to talk about some special qualities of friendship, which emerge when we compare it to the other two natural loves, okay, all of those loves that were found well before you know, Christ came to reveal the supernatural love of charity. So thinking about Eros, that passionate love, affection, the mother-baby love, you could say, um, and friendship. In friendship, we have two or more individuals who are discovering that they have something in common. Okay, they share a common insight or a common interest, which perhaps their larger circle of acquaintances does not share. And in a sense, if there are two friends, I mean, there can be more, but start out with two friends, if they are absorbed in a common interest, now, this could be art or religion as much as it could be something less noble, like just playing soccer or even playing video games. Okay, there is some common interest. And friends stand side by side, okay, in pursuit of this interest. They are side by side pursuing whatever it is that they have in common. Now, compare this to Eros. Okay, in passionate love, romantic love, the two people are not so much side by side as they are face to face, right? Their common interest is one another. They're sort of absorbed in each other. Um, there's not really any room for anybody else, which is why, you know, jealousy enters into romantic love, right? Now, compare this to friendship. Friendship, on the other hand, is not a jealous kind of love. In some sense, it's the more the merrier. If somebody else comes along who shares this common interest, well, great. Come along and join us. We can all be friends. Really, the only limit to our circle of friends on Earth is time and space, right? I don't have time in my life to deal with a thousand good friends. But if I could, I would, right? And so in heaven, there will be no time and space limit. So our circle of friends in heaven can be, you know, as huge as, as God will allow. Um, so that's sort of one difference, you know, the side-by-side -side versus the face-to-face. -face. <clears throat> also, if you compare friendship to the other two natural loves, we see that friendship has more of a deliberate nature than eros and affection. Think of it this way. Can you really choose who it is that makes your heart skip a beat? Okay. We certainly don't choose our parents or our siblings, okay? This, these are just sort of feelings, okay? You could call them passions that sort of arise spontaneously. I don't mean you have to marry the person that makes your heart first skip a beat, but the fact is it's something that is 
a little bit more part of our animal nature than our rational nature, okay? Um, these kind of strong feelings that, you know, we associate between a mother and child or between two people who are strongly attracted to each other, um, these strong feelings are kind of absent from friendship, okay? So friendship is more deliberate. It's more related to our rational nature. And Lewis, in his, in his book, compares friendship to something that is angelic, almost, okay? It's referring to our spiritual side more than to our physical side. And one other point to sort of differentiate friendship is that unlike eros and affection, friendship is not strictly necessary, okay? I mean, nature put those strong feelings between man and woman and between mother and child in us for a reason, okay? He says we, need, we all need eros to be begotten, <laughs> right? Or it wouldn't happen. Um, and we need affection to be reared, right? For somebody to slave over us, taking care of us, we need someone who has a very strong, you know, hot physical just um, drive. Um, you know, when a mother is away from her child for a long time, she, she feels it physically. So, um, so we really, eros and affection are, are necessary to live. Friendship, on the other hand, isn't strictly necessary to live, but it is important if we want to, as Aristotle would put it, to live well. Okay, as we've hopefully all come across in our philosophy <laughs> classes, there is a nobility in things that have no survival value, right? There's, those are the things that give value to survival, okay? Compared, you know, think about art or philosophy or a liberal arts education, right? We're all here because we think that it's good for its own sake, not just because it's going to, you know, get me a job. <laughs> Hopefully everyone will get jobs, but anyway, you're here for its own sake. Okay, this last point uh, reminds me of an old ad, which I'm sure you all don't remember, maybe some of the people here tonight do, for Nice and Easy. It is a home hair dye kit, and the line went, it's you, only better. <laughs> so think of it this way, without great hair, I'm not going to die, I'll go on living, but I could be so much more fabulous with great hair, okay? It's the same thing with friends, okay? And I want to illustrate this by sharing what I think is just a beautiful passage from Lewis on the role of friends in bringing out um, the best in one's personality. And I wish I had a chalkboard, just the first part is a little confusing, just listen. If of three friends, A, B, and C, A should die, B loses not only A, but A's part in C, while C loses not only A, but A's part in B. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the entire man into activity. I want lights other than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to one of Charles's jokes. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is gone, I have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and three by a fourth. They can say, as the blessed souls say in Dante, here comes one who will augment our loves. For in this love, to divide is not to take away. 
In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed increases the fruition which each has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, communicates that unique vision to all the rest. End of the quote. My point here is that you shine in the presence of friends. They have the capacity communally to bring out the best in you and you in them. It's you only better. Now, there are perils in friendships, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. But the point here is that even the best kind of person becomes better in the matrix of a good friendship. Individualism stunts personalities. Friendships cultivate them. And what happens when personalities are cultivated through friendship? A powerful thing happens. Little groups of friends can change the world. Look at the early church. How did the faith spread? They didn't have any parochial schools, no diocesan seminaries, no scholastic writings, no Christian art and architecture. It was a little band of 12 friends communicating the love of Christ through friendship. Why does it work this way? Well, we can't ignore the Holy Spirit's influence, obviously, in the early church, but aside from the Holy Spirit's influence, it works this way because the communal nature of friendship makes us more bold. Okay, It emboldens our beliefs. We become encouraged and affirmed by others who share our common interest. Suddenly, we're no longer alone, and so our timidity, our shyness, is banished. This quality of friendship can effectively turn its back on the world, even be deaf to the world. And this is what enabled the early church to survive against an unrelenting storm of persecution. So in brief, if friendship is the path to bringing out the best in oneself and to changing the world, it is something that ought to interest us. But as you know, tonight's talk isn't just about friendship in general. It's about friendship and the female there's a certain sense in which women are specially equipped to bring out the best in others and to change the world as a result. The recently canonized philosopher and Holocaust martyr Edith Stein addresses this issue when she speaks on the topic of spiritual motherhood. Edith Stein believed that all women in all walks of life were designed and called to live a kind of motherhood. What did she mean by this? Well, it's obvious from the outside that only a woman is prepared by nature to bear and care for new life, to be, in fact, a mother. She possesses the ability, literally, to grow and to nurture another person. Now, somebody might object that this is a a purely physical characteristic and not the basis for making generalizations about women, who are both physical and spiritual beings. But that's just the point. If a person is both physical and spiritual, it doesn't make sense that women would merely be endowed with an ability to nurture them physically. No, reason demands that she would be given the spiritual and psychological gifts to adequately care for this new person. So regardless of whether a particular woman ever bears a child in her life, she has been given a psychological outlook which is geared toward the development and nurture of another person. A woman by nature is interested in persons. Stein describes a woman as a shelter in which other souls may unfold. 
One scholar of Stein's echoes this. She says that woman is meant to be a sacred sanctuary, a haven of safety, a power of good for someone, something else, something besides herself. Fulton Sheen notes that while men tend to stand around chatting about things and ideas, women are much more inclined to stand around chatting about other people. We can do it for hours. Now, is it that we're incapable of talking about things and ideas? Of course not. But I'm referring to a certain inclination and preference that we have. But there are much deeper implications here. For instance, in what way is a person different from a thing or an idea? Well, for one, a person is a concrete whole. There is nothing abstract about a person. When a mother takes care of her child... She doesn't have the luxury of caring for his physical needs one day and his psychological needs the next. No, she needs to relate to this child as a whole and in the present moment. She cannot abstract from or ignore any of his needs. A person is a multifaceted creature, and women are inclined and equipped to deal simultaneously with all of these facets. That's why women tend to excel at what we call multitasking. A woman is a natural multitasker because she is person-oriented. She demonstrates an instinctive way of tuning in to persons and to personal details that most men do not share. Now, I don't mean that men can't be tuned into persons and personal details, but usually, in most cases, this comes by way of learning. Okay, it's a learned, it's not quite as instinctive as it is with women. And he needs to learn those things, that's good. A man's predominant tendency is to focus on the part rather than the whole, to think linearly, sort of tackling one task at a time. You know, it's been commented that while men tend to be the specialists, women are a kind of universalist. And this isn't a talk on men, but I just wanted to sort of contrast those two ideas. Um, But what is the gift specifically that enables a woman to do this, to sort of connect so naturally with others? Well, Edith Stein argued that it was a woman's emotions which fueled this ability. She commented that it is only through the stirring of the emotions that one can really relate to another person in its entire being. For example, back to the mother example, one glance at her child's face can often reveal more to a mother than if she were to stand there and ask 20 questions. It is the place of the intellect to separate and to abstract The intellect breaks things down in order to understand them. The emotions, on the other hand, can sense the whole. This ability is what the ages have termed women's intuition. It's an immediate grasp of a particular truth. I'm not suggesting that women don't have an intellect, but merely that it is not primarily the intellect which powers her heightened ability to engage with persons. Why I'm bringing this in tonight is to illustrate the naturalness with which we as women enter into friendships. With our gravitation toward others and our interest in their personal well-being, we are absolutely suited to be instruments of evangelization to others. By cultivating friendships now, we are directing our feminine energies, living spiritual motherhood in the here and now, regardless of what future life we are called to enter. Think about it. How can we expect to be a good wife, a good mother, a good nun, a good professional, if we're lousy friends? We need to take our friendships seriously and approach them in a truly deliberate manner. 
we ought not to fall into friendships like we fall in love. And I'm talking about crush love. Okay, I'm not talking about marriage here, but just the sort of that initial passionate response in which you develop a crush on someone. Okay, Eros. That's less, a little less than rational, remember? It's just as easy to get a crush on a jerk as it is on a good guy, right? <laughs> because crushes are about feelings that, that are beyond our control. Of course, you, can, you don't have to act on those feelings. I don't want to distinguish, but the fact is, it's not within your control. So friendships are tied less to our animal passions, and we need to treat them this way. Friendship is a serious business, and not only because of its lofty claims to self-fulfillment and to you know, changing the world and making it a better place, but also because of its dangers. Up until this point, I've been speaking of friendship in an exceedingly favorable way. But if friendship is so great, why didn't Christ mention faith, hope, and friendship? The problem lies with the definition of friendship. If it is, in fact, a kind of personal bond rooted in a common interest, this necessarily leaves room for the question, are we talking about a good common interest or a bad common interest? Recall that friendship is eminently spiritual, right? Lewis talked about it being angelic. Is something good simply because it is spiritual? Just ask Lucifer and his friends. <laughs> friendship in its natural state is simply too neutral a concept to be unequivocally good. To bond with other people over vice is not only possible, but an extremely attractive prospect. <clears throat> Lewis smartly illustrates this dynamic in his own way. He says, it was wonderful when we first met someone who cared for our favorite poet. What we had hardly understood before now took clear shape. What we had been half ashamed of, we now freely acknowledged. But it was no less delightful when we first met someone who shared with us a secret evil. This too became far more palpable and explicit. Of this, too, we ceased to be ashamed. Even now, at whatever age, we all know the perilous charm of a shared hatred or grievance. We need to ask ourselves, what are my friendships grounded upon? Sadly, having people you call friends is no guarantee that you are growing closer to the image and likeness of God to which we are called. Are these friends bringing out the fullness of my personality or simply making me feel less guilty about my weekend activities? I mentioned earlier that being in the society of friends can make us bolder, less shy about our beliefs. This, too, has a perilous prospect. Where two or more are gathered, they say, a corporate pride can easily develop. We're so much better than them, you know, that group, whatever, us, our friends. But even a justified sense of superiority over those who don't value what we value, especially when, we val when what we value is good, this justified sense of superiority can become ugly when it refuses mercy to those outside the circle. Remember, no circle of friends can be without fault because circles of friends are composed of humans who are not without fault. Where partial indifference to others becomes total indifference, we are in danger of becoming what Lewis called a self-appointed aristocracy. Maintaining good friendships demands that we strive for humility. We must never allow cliques to become a substitute for our personality. Women, in particular, seem to fall victim to the dynamic of cliques. It seems paradoxical. I described earlier uh, women as being very fertile ground for cultivating friendships. 
but experience reveals that we women often have some of the most tumultuous friendships going. So what's the deal? The answer lies simply in the way that original sin distorts our motherly nature. A woman is naturally concerned with the persons around her, but sin can lead this natural concern for persons right off a cliff. It can become warped and degenerate into an unbounded curiosity about the personal business of others. It is women who tend to be most criticized for gossiping about others as well as meddling in their affairs. As we all know, gossip can be and is toxic to friendships. I have a hunch that most of us here tonight have been on both sides of the gossip chain, and it can be exceedingly painful. Furthermore, because of a woman's gift of multitasking that I referenced earlier, it's very easy for a woman to make the mistake of dabbling in too many things at once, putting herself in danger of living only at a superficial level. Okay, so where a man might get lost in his project and sort of not pay attention to anything else because he's so into his project, a woman sometimes has her hand in so many things that she's not entering very deeply into anything. Superficiality can deeply affect our friendships. Recall that friendships, by definition, are supposed to be about something, a shared interest of some sort. If our friendships are suffering, possibly that our focus is consistently on ourselves, or that the relationship is plagued by pettiness, perhaps we need to ask, what is the basis for this friendship? Do I need to develop deeper interests to ask more of myself? Do I need to invest myself in a pursuit which will draw me into deeper, more profound relationships with others? Shallow interests yield weak friendships. Perhaps the greatest source of struggle for the feminine soul affected by sin is dealing with what I previously described as a woman's source of strength, the emotional life. Without deliberate self-control, the emotions can easily lead a woman into a life of fantasy. Edith Stein argues that our emotions actually need to be trained so that their appropriateness and intensity do in fact correspond to the truth of their object. This is not an easy task. I'm getting at the very goal of virtue itself, that a person's emotions are genuinely uplifted by what is good and really disgusted by what is evil. Remember, true virtue is not just about knowing what's right and dutifully doing it, okay? That's continence, okay? But true virtue is about knowing it and feeling it. It's about embracing what's good with your whole person. Our society today tells us that emotions have nothing to do with truth. You simply feel what you're going to feel, and there's no point in judging whether a person has had an appropriate emotional response. Edith Stein saw it differently. The emotions are the feminine source of strength, which enable her to tune in to persons. And yet, they become our Achilles heel if a woman does not temper them with her rational powers. As my husband is wont to say in class, you have to bring your brain to the party. <laughs> if we don't do this, women run the risk of becoming obsessed with relationships and slaves to our moods. As Alice von Hildebrand put it, if all the tears shed by women had been collected since the beginning of the world, they would compete with the sea. The tears shed by men might fill a pond of modest size. <laughs> Now, this is not to suggest that all tears are bad or inappropriate. 
But each of us must reflect on how many of our own tears have been those of self-pity, of self-centeredness, of wounded vanity, or of sorrow at imagined offenses. Women have an uncanny ability to create fantasy worlds. <laughs> and while a woman's sensitivity is a beautiful gift, we can easily find ourselves becoming oversensitive. We are certain that someone has snubbed us in some fashion. For some personalities, these offenses lead to retaliation and division among groups. But for others, especially the more introverted personalities, they can lead to fear. Fear of reaching out to others. Fear of making efforts at friendship because they don't want to be hurt again. And so it is that we have to engage in a constant struggle to purify those friendships we are striving to form. We need to do a friendship examination of conscience now and then. Asking ourselves a few questions. So I just have a few proposed questions. Are my friendships shallow? Have I alienated others through cliquish behavior? Am I capable of thinking for myself? Do I gossip? Am I as good a listener as I am a talker? Now, a side note here, which I didn't touch on earlier, referring to this, the urge to sort of unload on others is natural to most women. Our personal orientation leads us and lends itself to communication. I mean, that's what we are. They say that statistically a woman says like three times as many words in one day as a man. So we, we are by nature communicators, okay? But there are some of us, some personalities, that really need to to curb, to check this urge, to curb some of our unloading, and reserve much of it to Christ himself in our prayer life. Only this will give us the interior capacity to be available to the others, right? If we're so full of our own problems and anxieties, we're not going to be available to others, which is our true vocation, right? If we're going to sort of mother others, we need to have room for them. Continuing with the examination of conscience, if I'm struggling to make friends, we might need to ask ourselves, have I allowed my imagination to create enemies or to exaggerate a conflict? Do I expect friends to flock to me without effort? Have I really made an effort to get involved and to develop good and worthy interests that might connect me to others? Have I let fear keep me from reaching out to someone else? I don't want to go on much longer because I want to have our discussion, but the ad for this talk did promise that I'd address the topic of boyfriends. So I think I'll limit myself to two comments here, and they both have to do with the term boyfriend. I hate that word, by the way. Can't we say man friend? I just, you know, when I was dating this 30-year-old guy, and this is my boyfriend. It just sounded really weird and childish, but um, gentleman friend. Um, it's just one of those terms. But regardless of how silly it sounds, the term is illuminating in other ways. Take a look at the latter part of the word. What's the latter part of the word boyfriend? Friend, okay? And as I said earlier, it's easy and sometimes utterly out of our hands to sort of fall in love with someone. That's really eros, okay, that passionate response of our feelings which attracts us to a particular member of the opposite sex. It's natural, it's good, it's what makes the world go round, but eros is not, eros alone is not the basis for a happy marriage. 
Okay, first of all, we're totally leaving out the fourth love, charity, and Christ says we can't accomplish anything without that supernatural gift. But even from a purely natural point of view, a marriage is not going to be fulfilling unless spouses are friends as well as lovers. We might need to ask ourselves, is my boyfriend actually my friend? Recall, friendships must revolve around something, not ourselves. They involve a shared interest beyond that of gazing into one another's eyes. Do we cultivate common interests? Do we have good conversations? Do we include and involve others who share these interests? This advice is not merely for the practical purpose of helping us to live purity in our relationship, but it's also key in sorting out if the person I'm dating is really a good match for me. Ladies, passions alone are not enough to sustain a marriage. No matter who you are, the passions calm down after a little bit of time. There is no substitute for good friendship. The other aspect of having, or of trying to win the heart of, uh, a boyfriend is that um, has to do with the other half of the word. Okay, boyfriend, meet up with friend, the word boy. Okay. <laughs> this topic alone could merit another talk, which I'm not going to do, I promise. Um, but suffice it to say that boys, human males, are quite different in many ways from human females. And I'm just going to bring out one point. One way in which the two genders are starkly different is in the area of gender identity. Women seem to intuit fairly easily, fairly obviously, that they are women, okay? <laughs> we seldom have the, the need to prove that we're a woman, okay? A woman's body and its natural processes are constantly reminding us <laughs> that we're women. Not a problem. a woman's body just simply reveals her identity to her. But a man's body-soul relationship is a little less direct. Okay, A man's body does not immediately reveal to him that he is a man in the way that a woman's does. Instead, men tend to feel the need to prove that they are truly men. Centuries of male initiation rites testify to this fact. <laughs> It is as though his body serves as an instrument to his identity, which is then firmly established only through his deeds, through his actions. I bring this up because I want to underscore the deep need that men have for strong male friendships. Men seem to learn their manhood from other men in a way that is often mysterious to us women. But whether they are jocks or intellectuals or somewhere in between, they do seem to need a certain amount of male bonding. Okay? These friendships are necessary and quite formative for them. In a world utterly hostile to a man attempting to live Christian virtue, the men here at Christendom need to take advantage of the fertile ground that they have right now to form healthy male friendships. When these male peers of yours are sort of bounced from Christendom into the world at large, their prospects at forming such relationships will be a lot more limited. Not impossible, but, but limited and they will desperately need the healing power that comes from strong friendships to truly really sustain and encourage them on their Christian journey in this world. We women, simply because we're women, cannot be a part of those special friendships. It doesn't mean we can't be friends with guys, but we need to leave some of those friendships alone. 
It may mean for us resisting the temptation to be always available to them and simply leaving them to themselves sometimes. It may be mysterious to us what they do together, <laughs> but mysteries are not all that uncommon between the sexes. And I'm not pretending that these young men are always living perfect virtue together either. Okay, we may be frustrated if we see that they're acting like idiots sometimes. Okay, we may feel that taking the high road by refusing to drink with them, to play video games for hours with them, or, or to do whatever else with them, um, we might feel that refusing to do that is sort of pointless and unrewarding, but it's not pointless. Okay, sometimes guys do stupid things. If we descend to the level of men who are doing childish things, they're never going to rise up. Okay, like it or not, it is a fact of nature that, as Fulton Sheen phrased it, civilization rises or falls to the level of its women. What we expect or do not expect from men is precisely what we will receive. But for those who are trying to hang on to a boyfriend, or perhaps trying desperately to get a boyfriend, what we have to keep in mind is that by holding the bar high, okay, by our example, we are teaching these men what to value. They may not marry you, <laughs> but they will remember you when they are choosing their spouse several years from now, okay? You are affecting their future choice by the way you live now. You are forming their image of womanliness. When a woman descends to the level of men doing idiotic things, she betrays her friends. Okay, don't betray your friends. And form lots of good female friendships so you have something to do when the guys go off and be idiots together. <laughs> I want to close with what I hope is an encouraging thought about feminine friendships. Having been out of college now for over 10 years, I can say from experience that developing deep faith-based friendships during college has been an amazing blessing in my life ever since. I call these friends my core friends. The support system that these friends become when you are suddenly sent off into the world. I mean, there's this great, you know, scattering that happens after graduation. I know some people go to grad school, some people are on the secular career track, some people are married right away in, in a world that is sometimes isolated. Um, and having this support system is truly a godsend. These friends know you. They know your heart. They value what you value because, in a sense, you start to see through the same eyes. When your beliefs are challenged or attacked, you stand more confident because you know they are behind you, even if they are hundreds of miles behind you. As Lewis says, theirs is the praise we really covet and the blame we really dread. Even if it's only through letters, emails, or the telephone, these deepest friendships are those where two can truly pick up wherever they have left off. And I've really experienced that in my life, being able to pick up even after a few years and, and immediately connect. Now, this doesn't mean that we mustn't work to develop new friendships wherever our life leads us. But many of those relationships are going to have to begin at much lower levels. The gold mine that you have here at Christendom of those who value the highest things in common is a gift indeed. I cannot emphasize enough that what you have in these four years here is an unprecedented and unrepeatable opportunity to cultivate friendships among women. And we must keep in mind that friendships generate other friendships. Core friends connect us with other kindred spirits over time. Most notably for myself and uncountable others that I know, our core friends led us through the years eventually to meet our spouses. 
for those of us who were not so fortunate to discover our mate in college, we were led to him by other eyes, which valued what we valued, and we truly found our vocations with the help of friends. Earlier I mentioned that friendship was deliberate and chosen, that we choose our friends. In the end, this isn't strictly true. So I'd like to conclude with one more uh, quote from C.S. Lewis, which I think is beautiful, and then we'll start our discussion. In friendship, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university over another, posting to different regiments, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discrimination and good taste in finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each the beauty of all the others. They are no greater than the beauties of a thousand other men, but by friendship God opens our eyes to them. They are, like all beauties, derived from him, and then in a good friendship, increased by him through the friendship itself, so that it is his instrument for creating as well as for revealing. At this feast, it is he who has spread the board, and it is he who has chosen the guests. It is he, we may dare to hope, who sometimes does, and always should, <coughs> preside. Let us not reckon with our host. That's it.